The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Let's get into the headlines this hour. Crunch time for the ECB. European yields spike as Germany's constitutional court prepares to rule on whether the ECB's sovereign bond buying program is appropriate. It's a decision that could hinder the central bank's QE measures. Focus on the earnings front turns to the French and Italian banking sector as BNP Paribas and Intesa Sao Paulo get set to release results with the industry logging record loan loss provisions. We're going to hear from the CFO of the French lender shortly. Apple raises $8.5 billion in the bond market, issuing cheap debt to make the most of the Fed's emergency measures and to help fund its dividend and buyback plans. Titans. WeWork founder Adam Newman takes the fight to SoftBank's suing Masayoshi Sun's investing giant for scrapping a $3 billion tender offer that was part of the office sharing group's rescue plan. Plus, you've got oil prices rallying for the fifth day in a row as data points to slowing storage inflows. Whilst demand recovery hopes, they rise as lockdowns across the US and Europe begin to ease. Uh, the big news from uh, BNP Paribas then, they expect net income for 2020 to be about 15 to 20% lower than in 2019. Let's hear from the CFO on the first quarter numbers. Uh, Charlotte spoke with Lars Machinal. If we now look at this first quarter, the first quarter started very well. And then towards the end, it was impacted by the COVID-19, in particular around three aspects that impacted the result. The first one is, of course, a step up in the cost of risk. So we stepped up our cost of risk by half a billion. And then there are two one-off events in the top line. One of them is insurance. Insurance has part of his investment portfolio, which is moving through the PL, having the markets go down, that effect went down as well. But that is a one-off event that will come back once the markets pick up. The second one is related to our equity and prime services activities, which were impacted amongst others by the definition or the strong recommendation by the authorities not to pay dividends. So this was impacting together with volatility in the market. But as a quick reminder, this was our equity activities. The fake activities did very well. So overall, our global markets performed well. So if we look at the reserve itself of the first quarter, the top line came in at 11 billion euros, uh, a tad down of around 2.3%. But if you would look through those exceptional one-off elements, up 2.8%. If you look at the costs, down 3.5% on the back of all the elements we put in motion. Thank you. 
And then if you look at the bottom line, it came in at 1.3 billion, a reduction of 33%. But again, if you look through the effects of COVID-19, it would be up 6.7% in line with our overall uh, plan. So this is where we stand. And it basically shows the strength of our balance sheet because our common equity tier one ratio clocked in at 12%, so well above uh, the supervisory demands. And on top of that, if you look at liquidity, we had a liquidity reserve of 339 billion. So overall, the balance is in good shape going forward. Uh, Lars Bachanel, the CFO of BNP Paribas. Let's just round out the figures for you then. So we dashed into that soundbite so you could hear what Lars Bachanel had to say. But just rounding out the figures for you. Profits fell 33% then on the first quarter. The group has increased its uh, money set aside uh, to more than half a billion euros in loan loss provisions. Net income fell to 1.28 billion euros in the quarter. Revenues dropped 2.3% here. Just worth pointing out, the pre-tax income uh, in the year-ago period was 2.68 billion euros. So that's quite a significant decline in the net line for the first quarter here. Um, Lars Bachanel was talking about the strength of the balance sheet, the CET1 ratio in at 12%. And probably just worth reminding you, our audience, that um, there was a story back in early April that the business had lost $200 million in derivatives trading. Some banks have done well through this period of heightened volatility. Clearly, BNP Paribas took a little bit of pain. And I think that's why Lars Machinal was talking about the uh, higher level of risk for the bank. Charlotte's been taking a look at the small print for this business and has some more for us. And you conducted the interview with the CFO. Charlotte, do you think the uh, put across the picture on how this bank can rebound through 2020 strongly. What what messages did you take away? Well, look, when there was the early release from Société Générale uh, last week, there was a fear that things would be worse than expected for all French banks. So everybody was sitting tight to see what BNP would put out today and also uh, later in the week, Crédit Agricole and Natixis also reporting. But turns out uh, with profit down 33%, it's actually much better than expected. A forecast for some analysts was expecting it to be down by 60%. So here, a better performance from BNP Paribas. Uh, revenue at 10.9 billion, so that's down 2.3%, while forecast was expecting something more like down five to six percent. So here actually BNP did better than forecast, better than expected. As you mentioned, CT1 ratio at 12 percent. What hit them, and as last machine mentioned in the, in the in the tape that we just played, is equities business. So within CIB, revenue was down 1.9 percent. FIC did really well again, much better than expected. FIC revenue was up 34.5 percent. So here a good performance in that uh, part of the business. But equities really crashed. That's something also that we saw Societe had the equity derivatives business here that normally is a point point of strength for French banks really has really hit them really hard with uh, companies not paying dividends and therefore impacting that part of the business here. So equities, the business was on eight, uh, a loss of 87 million euros there for the business. So very much impacting uh, the revenues for BNP Paribas. Uh, so as you mentioned, those loan loss provisions of, of about half a billion uh, that they put aside. Uh, looking at the rest of the year, uh, the bank expects a net income uh, lower by about 15 to 20 percent um, than 2019. Uh, also, um, the cost reduction they say will be stepped up, uh, but that the increase of the cost of risk could offset. 
offset some of these cost reductions in 2020. They see a very slow, gradual recovery of the economy uh, and not until they said that GDP, the 29 GDP level will not be reached until 2022. And in the meantime, the recovery will be very slow and gradual, uh, therefore seeing their profit uh, lower in 2020. Uh, and so here, this picture for BNP Paribas, uh, profit down, revenue down, but overall better than expected, uh, especially compared to uh, competitors, Société Générale, that reported early uh, last week and p- uh, posted uh, a loss last year. L- last week, sorry. Okay, Charlotte, thank you for that. Let's uh, focus on ADECO. This is the uh, recruitment and employment agency. In terms of the numbers as delivered, the net loss for the first quarter in at 348 million euros on a revenue of 5.139 billion euros. Uh, revenues down then at 9% year on year on a reported basis. The group also pausing its share buyback program. Uh, a message on balance sheet strength. The group, uh, according to the release, has a strong balance sheet and significant liquidity headroom. Let's get into the detail this morning with Alain De Hayes. He is the CEO of the business. Alain, welcome to the programme. Just characterise for us then how bad this first quarter was and what you think that sets us up for in terms of Q2. Now, um, I would say that uh, when we started the first quarter, January, February, results were really in line with the expectations. We were at minus 4%, really similar to the fourth quarter. But then we saw in March, and especially during the last two weeks of March, that the the, the economy was impacted by the, the COVID-19, and then the, the revenue went down to minus uh, 19%. Uh, providing this minus percent uh, revenue uh, decrease in the first quarter. We saw that the the decline was around 13 percent um, uh, in Europe, uh, coming from the, the government lockdowns. We saw also North America at uh, minus 9 percent. And then we saw also Japan remaining strong, uh, like Latin America. We had a plus 7 percent in Japan and Latin America uh, plus 30 percent or or, all the business like career transition and talent development were also up four percent organically and we had the general assembly or uh, upskilling and reskilling institution up uh, seven percent now this was the the first quarter for sure when we look at the second quarter uh, it will be a difficult one, but we expect it uh, to be the trough. Uh, we have seen that governments have intensified the, the lockdown measures. So uh, April was at about 40% decline uh, year on year. Um, this can be compared uh, with the figures of 2009 uh, when it, where we had, when we had uh, at the lowest point of time or 10 volumes uh, down 35%. So that's that's the picture today. Um, before we move on to some of the other measures now that employees are taking, I, I just wanted to, f- to ask you about the impairment charge that you've taken in some markets here. Why did you feel it necessary to take a goodwill impairment in these numbers? Now, we... we for, 
we regularly look at our uh, portfolio of activity and we, we make this uh, the test of the impairment. And more precisely, when we look at the, the state of uh, the German economy uh, or German uh, company and the perspective uh, regarding both the economy and, and the automotive in which we are active, we decided that it was a prudent decision to take the impairment uh, on our portfolio. So that's explained uh, the, the 340 million impairment we have taken on Germany. Alan, very good morning to you. The ILO put out a report on the 28th of April, and I'm sure you saw it, saying 1.6 billion people employed in the informal economy, nearly half the global workforce, could see their livelihoods destroyed. Do you recognise those kind of numbers in this present crisis, or do you think that's alarmist? Uh, first of all, it's a reality that today 30 million people are in temporary uh, unemployment. Uh, on all sides, our first priority during this crisis has been and is people, uh, because we have today more than 400,000 associates at work uh, in support of our clients, and, and we must make sure that they are in a safe and healthy environment. Uh, we see also some of, uh, of our countries uh, opening the lockdown and, and for us it is very important uh, that they are going back uh, in a safe and healthy environment. So that's why we are in, in, in contact with, with government, with Ministry of Labour. That's why we have also taken an initiative uh, to make sure the right protocols uh, are being distributed and, and applied uh, in all industries and in countries to make sure there is a, a safe and healthy uh, environment. Now, regarding um, the future, uh, if we see some early signs of uh, a gradual stabilization, uh, there is still a lot of uh, unclarity, and it, it's today very difficult to to plan the, the type of recovery we will have. But it is clear that it is an unprecedented uh, situation uh, regarding people at home and, tem and temporary unemployment. Alan, you haven't answered my question, I'm afraid, sir. Do you see tens, if not hundreds of millions of jobs being lost in this current crisis? You have a very privileged position, sir, knowing so much more about this market than the rest of us as well. The ILO is talking about hundreds of millions of jobs potentially being lost. Do you see the same kind of numbers? I don't see, a, uh, for sure at this stage, I don't see that kind of numbers. I think government uh, in, in many, many countries have applied uh, the best practice that Germany did in, in the crisis of 2008-2009. They have put uh, a lot of people uh, in temporary unemployment, but subsidized. And once they are opening their lockdown, hopefully they, we will have the same uh, kind of recovery Germany had in 2008-2009 and that the economy will rebound very fast. But at this stage, it's, it's too premature to say uh, what kind of, of impact it will have on the unemployment. Elaine, if you look at the U.S. market, though, just as an example, we saw about what 24 million odd jobs uh, gone very quickly in the space of a, a few weeks, now up to about 30 million people on unemployment benefits. Could we be back in a situation where it takes almost 10 years to add those jobs again? 
I don't think so. I don't think it will take 10 years. Uh, for sure, it, it will take uh, more than, than, than two or three quarters. We see that it will be a, a, a gradual recovery, rather slow, depending from, from the industry. But I don't think that it will take 10 years like the previous one, because governments have, have learned about how to handle that type of, of crisis. Uh, and all the measures they are taking now are really to uh, to support, uh, let's say, the fastest rebound possible, uh, the fastest possible rebound uh, of the economies. Alain, we're going to say goodbye. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on The Numbers. Alain de Hayes, the CEO of ADECO Group. Still to come, did the European Central Bank go too far by doing whatever it takes? Germany's top court is set to rule on the legality of the ECB's bond purchase scheme. We'll talk about that. And if you want to keep in touch with all the monetary policy moves central banks take amid the coronavirus pandemic, check out the Squawkbox podcast. We'll be back. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. We're back, everybody. Let's take a quick look at uh, some of the markets. Um, Let's pop up some boards. We can just do that now. This is where we are on the crude story. 28.27 on Brent. There is a little bit of a rebound going on in the oil story this hour. The U.S. markets closing and just about managing to eke out a positive end to the trading session. But it was primarily the technology companies that helped that happen with Microsoft, Netflix, Apple and Facebook all pushing the indices into positive territory. U.S. airline stocks very much in focus after Warren Buffett saying, He'd sold out of all of his airline positions and a lot of people deciding that they would do exactly what Warren Buffett said he'd done, which is why they're all sharply lower and underperforming the overall market significantly. Apple has raised $8.5 billion from a fresh bond offering as the tech giant took advantage of emergency Fed measures to issue some of its cheapest debt in years. The company said the move will help pay for buybacks and dividends. The Fed cut rates to almost zero in March and promised to act as a buyer of last resort for investment-grade corporate debt. Meanwhile, the Treasury Department says it plans to borrow a record or $2.99 trillion in the second quarter in a bid to support increased government spending during the coronavirus pandemic. The borrowing level would be more than five times larger than the previous high set in 08, sorry, 09, and far above the department's estimates issued earlier this year. And you're looking at uh, Mr. Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, in case you were wondering and not familiar with the man. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway Chairman Warren Buffett 
says recent actions taken by the Federal Reserve have helped combat the economic fallout from the lockdown. Speaking at Berkshire's AGM, the billionaire investor reserved special praise for Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Jay Powell, in my view, and the, and the, and the, and the Fed board belong up there on that pedestal because with him because uh, they acted in the middle of March, probably somewhat instructed by what they'd seen in 2008 and 2009. Uh, uh, they reacted in a huge way uh, and essentially allowed what's happened since that time to play out the way it has. Warren Buffett uh, on Jay Powell. Well, later today, Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarido will sit down with our U.S. colleagues for his first interview since the central bank held rates near zero last week. That exclusive at 2100 CET tonight. Germany's constitutional court set to rule this morning on whether the ECB overstepped its mandate by buying trillions of euros in government bonds. Even if the court rules in favour of the ECB, the decision could have a lasting impact on future measures, including its pandemic emergency package and how it operates. Let's get out to Aneta, um, who's going to tell us a little bit more about this decision. Aneta, it's not the first time that the court in Karlsruhe has judged the ECB's position on uh, QE and um, uh, asset purchasing. Why this latest move? Because it came back from the European Court of Justice and now they have to have a look whether this really is not breaching uh, constitutional law in Germany. So it's highly unlikely, just to say that first, that the uh, Constitutional Court in Karlsruhe, Karlsruhe will prohibit the Bundesbank, what it essentially would mean to um, participate in the ECB's QE program. But of course, there's a remote risk that the Constitutional Court in Karlsruhe could set some limits to what the Bundesbank is allowed to do, such as, for example, insisting that uh, the Bundesbank can only buy according to the capital key and should um, stick to the issuer limit, etc. pp. Just as a reminder, the Constitutional Court can only um, infringe actions which the Bundesbank is taking as a member of the euro system. So in case, adverse scenario, the Bundesbank can no longer um, participate in QE, the ECB or the, the other central banks of the euro system would have to step up their action in order to prevent market turmoil. But that's an extreme adverse scenario. What it's widely expected is that they are going to back um, the ECB's current purchase program. But there is, of course, a certain risk, as I was saying, that they might um, say that there are limits. And this could then have um, adverse effect on the pandemic emergency program. As we all know, this one comes without, with a lot more flexibility. In essentially, the ECB in, in that pandemic um, emergency program is more or less saying that they can do whatever they want. And that actually could, could be a problem. But it is highly unlikely that they've looked at it already because like the cutoff day was January 23rd when they announced that their ruling will be in March. And <clears throat> the two months in between, um, most likely 
passports were only used for translating the whole thing in English. So highly unlikely that they already looked at the pandemic emergency program. So with that, I'm sending it back to you. Hope yeah. it, I did clarify matters a bit. Well, yeah, I mean, so much of this seems to be concerns in Germany that moral hazard is removed from the process. So, so much of, uh, of what the um, a German court, it seems to me, is focused on is whether there should be um, explicit um, uh, fogging of the actions of the ECB to make sure that that element of moral hazard isn't removed from the process. Is it, is it possible that the ECB, even if the court ruling goes in its favour, will have to have another look at its messaging around the bond purchasing just to make sure that there is an element of uncertainty in the market's mind about what it may do next? Actually, I have the feeling it actually goes in, in a different direction because ever since Christine Lagarde had that communication mishap when she said the ECB is not in for uh, a managing yield, um, the ECB backpedaled tremendously on that messaging. And now um, in background talks, you also get a very clear message that, yes, it is in the ECB's interest to manage down yields uh, if they are diverging. And so I guess they will get more aggressive, more pragmatic under the new stewardship uh, of Christine Lagarde to keep the Eurozone together. Whether this is perhaps not uh, the the mindset of the Bundesbank, I think they, they don't really care anymore, Jeff. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.